You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 73, The Siege of Boston, Autumn Edition. So when I last focused on Boston more than a month ago, we left Washington during the summer of 1775, trying to get his officers to stop bickering with one another, creating the filthy mob that he found in Cambridge into an army, and dealing with a shocking lack of ammunition. In hindsight, the lack of ammunition may have actually saved the Patriot cause. Washington, by nature, was one to rush into an attack and expected all of his men to behave as bravely as he did. That tendency led to his defeat in the Ohio Valley 20 years earlier. But even the daring Washington could not presume to attack Boston without sufficient ammunition to arm his soldiers. This forced the general to spend more time training and organizing the army. Washington really wanted to invade the city of Boston right away and finish this war as quickly as possible. By autumn, he had acquired a little more gunpowder and was ready for a real fight. At a council of war, he proposed using a fleet of small whaleboats to cross into Boston and storm the regulars in street fighting. His council unanimously rejected his proposal. Getting the men to defend an entrenched position was one thing. Getting them to row across open water while being attacked by Navy cannon and regular musket fire, then make an amphibious landing and assault an entrenched enemy, was really too much to ask. Even if the men did not retreat in the face of withering fire, most of them would be mowed down before they reached shore. It was a crazy plan. Although his subordinate officers were more tactful in their comments. General Charles Lee said he was not well acquainted enough with the army to judge if the soldiers could do it and therefore felt it was too great a risk. General Sullivan argued that it might be better to wait for winter when Boston Harbor froze solid and the soldiers could walk across the ice. General Ward still argued that they should just occupy Dorchester Heights with artillery. From there, they could blast the city or the navy in the harbor and force the British into another Bunker Hill-style assault. Washington brought up his water invasion proposal several times over the next few months, only to be frustrated that no one else wanted to go along. When a congressional committee headed by Benjamin Franklin visited the camp in September, Washington discussed his proposal with them. Franklin, who had no first-hand military experience, diplomatically suggested that he was not qualified to make any recommendation on the proposal, but would refer the question back to the Continental Congress for more discussion. Although Washington's plans were at best risky, there was more behind his thinking than simple impatience. The Continental Army was plagued with disease. Smallpox, dysentery, 
and other illnesses would kill hundreds of soldiers over the course of the winter. Also, the men had little food, shelter, or clothing to get them through the winter, and Congress's ability to provide such necessities was dubious at best. Finally, most of the Army had signed up for duty through the end of the year. If nothing happened by December, most of the soldiers might return home rather than sit around for months in a disease-infested camp where they starved and froze. Despite these concerns, all of Washington's officers thought a suicide march into the British guns did not make any more sense. With Washington's attack plans frustrated, the two armies continued their siege with only minor skirmishes to break up the monotony of camp life. One of the biggest problems of having a standing army with little to do is that the soldiers get bored and then get into trouble. Some of the biggest troublemakers turned out to be the riflemen. Now remember, Congress had authorized riflemen from Virginia and Pennsylvania to join the Continental Army. By fall, the Army had over 1,400 of these men. The great benefit of rifles, as I've mentioned before, is that they can hit a man at 200 yards, while a musket is only good for around maybe 50 yards at best. Most soldiers still used muskets because rifles took too long to load and quickly became fouled after a few shots meaning that they would have to be cleaned before they could be loaded again. Despite the battlefield limitations, riflemen proved highly valuable for picking off sentries across the harbor and could be used to take out officers during a battle. These were also the first soldiers to join the Continental Army from outside of New England, meaning the grateful New Englanders wanted to show how happy they were to have them. The Virginia riflemen under Daniel Morgan and the Pennsylvania riflemen under Michael Cressup became heroes around camp, impressing soldiers with their marksmanship. The men stood apart from the rest of the army with their frontier-style hunting shirts. They received preferential treatment with their own separate encampments and an exemption from fatigue duty. Of course, the special treatment went to their heads, and the riflemen began to think they could get away with anything. They spent most of their days and nights sitting around, drinking, and telling each other about their exploits from their lives on the frontier. They also developed an attitude that they did not need to take orders from anyone. On September 10th, one of the officers in Thompson's Rifle Brigade had a sergeant arrested for neglect of duty and threw him in the stockhouse. Several of his buddies discussed breaking him out, as they had done for other comrades a couple of times before. After the officer heard about the discussions, he also ordered the arrest of the ringleader. A few hours later, the men broke out of the shack where they were being held and went back to their company. At this point, Colonel Thompson and his officers recaptured the prisoners and ordered them taken to the main guardhouse in Cambridge. About 20 minutes later, 32 riflemen took up their weapons and started marching to Cambridge with the intent of freeing their comrades. Thompson then sent an express rider to General Washington explaining what was about to happen. Washington, who was all about military discipline, was not going to allow soldiers to engage in a jailbreak without consequences. Upon receiving the message, he quickly assembled 500 soldiers with loaded muskets and fixed bayonets. They surrounded the guardhouse where the prisoners were being held. 
Washington then rode out personally to intercept the riflemen still marching toward headquarters. Seeing the large guard assembled, the riflemen decided that this was not such a good idea after all, and took cover behind some trees. Washington rode out and ordered them to ground their rifles. He had six of the ringleaders arrested and marched the rest back to camp for local punishment. Now, in the regular British army, a mutiny like this would likely result in some executions. But the Continental officers realized that lax discipline up until this time was probably partially responsible. The men would likely become good soldiers under proper discipline. The following day, the court-martial sentenced all the mutineers to a mere fine of 20 shillings each, with one mutineer receiving an additional penalty of six days in jail. But no one even got flogged. The incident seemed to bring the riflemen into line, and Washington also saw to it that the riflemen started to work fatigue duty to help them keep busy. As Washington waited around Cambridge, mostly trying to keep his bored army in line, he followed events in New York as General Schuyler and Montgomery began their assault across Lake Champlain towards St. Jean, which we discussed last week. In late summer, Colonel Benedict Arnold had come to Cambridge to fight with the Provincial Congress about paying his expenses for taking Fort Ticonderoga. During his time in Cambridge, Arnold met with Washington and discussed a whole range of political and military issues with him. Despite Arnold's abrasive personality, Washington seemed to respect his initiative and ability. Arnold was a fighter, not some politician-slash-officer who only talked a good game so far. After some further discussion, Washington gave Arnold an independent command. Arnold would take a force by sea up to what is today Maine. From there, his army would march overland toward Quebec. There, they would meet up with General Schuyler and would work together to take the city. Now, given Arnold's previous history in defying orders of superior officers, Washington made very clear to him that once he met up with Schuyler's force, his independent command came to an end, and he would follow orders from General Schuyler or Montgomery. Arnold, who had been a colonel in the Massachusetts militia, now received a commission as a colonel in the Continental Army. Washington gave him command of about 1,100 soldiers, including a few companies of the highly prized riflemen. Arnold's brigade set off for the Kennebec River in Maine sometime in September, and we'll take up that mission in a future episode. But right now I want to stay in Cambridge. With Arnold off to Quebec, Washington soon found he had a much more serious issue to deal with. Treason. As I mentioned in earlier episodes, Dr. Benjamin Church, head of the Massachusetts Committee of Safety, was now the chief medical officer for the Continental Army, and he had been sending messages to General Gage in Boston since well before Lexington and Concord. With the military lines now preventing anyone from entering or leaving Boston, messages had become increasingly difficult. The Royal Navy still maintained a presence at Newport, Rhode Island, where it was easier to interact with British officers. Church wrote a letter to one of Gage's officers, uh, Major Kane. He wrote the letter in cipher to avoid detection. The letter called for more attempts to reach a peaceful settlement, but also gave British intelligence about the troop numbers of the Continental Army and the state of their munitions. It discussed the planned attack on Canada 
as well as events at the Continental Congress. Church could not deliver this letter personally, even in Newport. Remember, he had visited Boston on the day after Lexington and Concord, and that still left many leading patriots suspicious of him. So instead, he used a woman as a courier. Some accounts say he was one of his mistresses, others say that she was a prostitute, although these characterizations may have been a way of lowering Church's reputation after the scandal broke. The woman hid the letter and attempted to reach Captain Wallace of the HMS Rose at Newport. Since she did not know Wallace personally, she asked a friend named Godfrey Wenwood to introduce them. She let slip to Wenwood that she had a letter that she needed to get to Boston. Wenwood, who was a patriot, grew suspicious. He told her that she might be in danger if she delivered the letter, and he got her to give him the letter and said he would take care of it. Wenwood then opened the letter and saw that it was in cipher, making him even more suspicious. After a few weeks, Church somehow found out that his letter had not yet arrived. He wrote to the woman to ask, and she again turned to Wenwood. Now convinced that this message was no good, Wenwood delivered it to Patriot leader Henry Ward in Providence. Ward sent it to General Green, who then informed General Washington of the letter. Washington had the woman arrested and interrogated. They agreed to keep the woman's identity a secret if she identified who gave it to her. Eventually, she gave up Church's name. Washington then had Church arrested and his papers searched. Either Church was extremely careful or he got advance notice of the search, but nothing in his papers turned up anything improper. Washington did have the letter deciphered, and Church admitted that it was his and that the translation was correct. However, he argued that his intent was not espionage. He had deliberately overstated Patriot's strength in an attempt to get General Gage to negotiate a peaceful solution to the siege. Washington ordered a court-martial, but that raised a whole host of legal questions. First, the Continental Congress had not passed any laws against treason. Massachusetts defined treason as defying the king. And if anything, Church was working for the king, at least more so than any of his accusers. Even if there had been a treason law, many were divided on whether Church was actually a traitor to the cause or just an idiot. For the moment, the court-martial simply ordered Church confined until the Continental Congress could decide what to do with him. Next, the Massachusetts House of Representatives, which had recently replaced the Provincial Congress, began their own proceedings against Church. Again, he argued he was passing along misinformation in an attempt to force Gage into peace negotiations. The House did not buy his story. It ruled that, although he was in military custody, if ever released, he should be held for trial in Massachusetts. In October 1775, the Continental Congress formally removed Church as physician-in-chief of the army. Now, Church would linger in a Connecticut prison for over two years. At one point in 1777, the British tried to return him to England as part of a prisoner exchange, but that plan fell through. In January 1778, Massachusetts ordered him expelled and placed him on a ship headed for Martinique. That ship disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle, never to be seen again. So with that, Church was gone forever. 
His family did make it to London, where the government gave his wife a pension for her husband's services. The Patriots were never entirely sure if Church was a full-blown traitor or not. It was not until more than a century later, when historians got a hold of General Gage's personal papers, that they found Church had been passing intelligence to the British for months. Now, Church's arrest also ferreted out another spy. Benjamin Thompson was a prominent New Hampshire colonist. Although strongly loyalist, he had pretended to be a patriot for years to protect his property from destruction or confiscation. He apparently assisted Church in delivering some of the messages to Gage. After Church's arrest, Thompson made his way to Newport and caught a ship into Boston. From there, he traveled to London, where he eventually received a commission in the British Army. He returned to fight with the regulars in New York later in the war. In November, Washington appointed a new artillery commander for the Army. The current artillery chief, Richard Gridley, had given a rather mediocre performance at Bunker Hill. While not court-martialed like his son, his battlefield performance was not exactly inspiring. Washington still valued Gridley's services as the Army's chief engineer, but turned over command of the artillery to Henry Knox. Like many appointments, Knox seems like a questionable choice to command all of the artillery for the Continental Army. The 25-year-old had owned a bookstore in Boston before the war. On the day of Lexington, he fled the city with little more than a sword and his wife. The British later looted and trashed his bookstore. Knox's military experience was limited mostly to reading military books in his store. He had volunteered with the British militia and had some very basic artillery training there. In 1773, he had managed to blow off two of his own fingers while firing a fowling musket at wild birds. But Knox had also been an active member of the Sons of Liberty, even though he never saw any combat. He did some reconnaissance during the Battle of Bunker Hill, but never fired a weapon in battle, nor did he receive a commission or enlist in the Provincial Army. He did work on some military matters as a civilian volunteer, what we today might call a consultant. When Washington came to Cambridge, Knox, along with his apparently very attractive wife, Lucy, dined with the new commander on several occasions. Washington was apparently impressed with the young man's ideas for the new Army's artillery. So, on November 17th, Washington agreed to make him commander of artillery in the Continental Army. A few weeks later, Washington dispatched the new Colonel Knox to Fort Ticonderoga to retrieve the captured artillery for use against Boston. So Knox set out on his first mission, which will be the subject of an upcoming episode. As early as September, it was clear to Washington and everyone else that there would be no break in the siege before the end of the year. He wrote a series of letters to the Continental Congress explaining why things would continue and requesting that Congress prepare for winter quarters and clothing for the Army. He also expressed concerns over the expiration of enlistments in December and the lack of funding to supply the soldiers with what they needed to continue. At a council of war on October 8th, Washington and his generals agreed that they would need over 20,000 soldiers for the 1776 fighting season. Washington hoped to form 28 regiments of Continental regulars 
who would serve until the end of 1776. He also attempted to mix together men from different states so that the regiments would not be exclusively Massachusetts men or Connecticut men or whatever. The command changes upset many soldiers who now wanted to leave even more. Congress, which still had no money or much of anything else to help Washington, gave him authority to impress wagons, horses, ships, and anything else he needed to supply his army. By the beginning of September, less than 5,000 men had enlisted for 1776, less than a quarter of Washington's goal. Even if Washington had enough food, clothing, and shelter for a 20,000-man army, the men, as I said, were not eager to re-enlist. Most were looking forward to returning home in December. Washington tried to encourage re-enlistments. He promised soldiers an opportunity to return home for a visit over the winter. He also began rationing supplies to those units that agreed to re-enlist. Even so, most men would not budge. He even required that any man leaving the army could not take his musket. Even though most men had brought their personal weapons, they would be forced to give them to the army and receive a promissory note for the value. At the beginning of December, the enlistments of several Connecticut regiments expired. Several units even picked up and headed home a few days before their December 10th expiration. The officers tried everything to get them to remain. An exasperated General Lee threatened to order the men to charge Bunker Hill, where they would almost certainly have been mowed down by British defenses. Even this threat did not dissuade them to re-enlist. On December 10th, most of them returned home. That was not the end, though. On their trip home, locals treated them like deserters and refused any assistance or accommodation. When they got home, they found the sentiments of their townspeople similarly cold. Many of the men would eventually return to duty. By the end of the year, Washington had succeeded in enlisting almost 10,000 men for the following year, about half his goal. Several more regiments, though refusing to commit to another year, agreed to remain until reinforcements arrived. Local militia also fielded about 5,000 men for temporary duty. As a result, Washington's total force remained over 15,000, or more than double the British garrison in Boston. Next week, we'll take a look at the British situation in Boston at the same time during the siege. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box 
plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Before we get to that, I want to remind everyone that as we enter the Christmas shopping season, you'll probably be doing some Christmas shopping at Amazon, because hey, who doesn't? If you do, please start by clicking on the book link from my blog at blog.amrevpodcast.com or from the book recommendation link on my website, www.amrevpodcast.com. If you go to Amazon through one of those links, and then you buy anything on the site, Amazon gives this podcast a commission on the sale. It's a great way to support the podcast with a purchase you were going to make anyway. So today's episode covers Washington's continuing siege of Boston. The siege began the day after Lexington and Concord in April. Washington took command in July, and we see him now sitting around for months getting frustrated by the standoff. By the end of the year, everyone is tired of sitting around camp, cold, hungry, and dying from disease. It really was a Herculean effort just to keep an army in the field. The process of replacing departing soldiers with new ones while facing an enemy just a few hundred yards away was a nerve-wracking one for the command. The other big issue we tackled today was the discovery of a spy in their midst. Benjamin Church had been a trusted member of the Massachusetts Committee of Safety for years. He was privy to all the Continental secrets, including the desperate shortage of gunpowder. He easily could have caused an end to the rebellion if General Gage had acted on his intelligence. That, however, did not happen. From what I've read, Church seemed to be hedging his bets. If the Patriots won, he would be one of their honored leaders. If the British won, he would avoid being tried for treason and would probably get a reward for his services. Instead, though, with his duplicity revealed, he went to an early death. If you want to read more about Church, his life, and his efforts to straddle both sides of the conflict, you will want to check out this week's book recommendation, Dr. Benjamin Church, Spy a case of espionage on the eve of the American Revolution, by John Nagy. This book is a relatively short one, only about 150 pages of text. The book also includes some fascinating appendices, transcripts of some original documents, including Church's autopsy of Crispus Attucks after the Boston Massacre, and a copy of the ciphered letter that he attempted to smuggle into Boston. For many, this first case of treason against the Patriot cause is relatively unknown. As with many espionage stories, there is little public record to memorialize events. Even so, this book digs through a great many primary resources to paint a picture of how these events came to be. The author, John Nagy, wrote a number of interesting books about espionage during the American Revolution. These include George Washington's Secret Spy War, Invisible Ink, Spycraft of the American Revolution, Spies in the Continental Capital, Espionage Across Pennsylvania During the American Revolution, 
and another book called Rebels in the Ranks, Mutinies of the American Revolution. All of these are interesting reads. Sadly, Mr. Nagy passed away only a couple of years after the 2013 publication of his book on Dr. Church. He did leave us with this wonderful book, though. If you want to learn about the first case of espionage in the American Revolution, you will want to get this book. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.